Tonight's gospel reading is from um, Numbers, several different verses throughout the chapter. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Ho, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt for nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance that of delium. The people went about and gathered it and ground it in mills, or beat it in mortars, and boiled it in pots, and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not eat one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month, until it comes out at your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you, and have wept before him, saying, Why did we come out of Egypt? And there went forth a wind from the Lord, and it brought quails from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp, about a day's journey on this side, and a day's journey on the other side, round about the camp, and about two cubits above the face of the earth. And the people rose all that day, and all night, and all the next day, and gathered the quails. He who gathered least gathered ten homers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. While the meat was yet between their teeth before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord smote the people with a very great plague. Therefore the name of that place was called Kibroth Hadaava, because there they buried the people who had the craving. The word of the Lord. So I'm writing about quail for my Birds of the Bible book, and I've, I've been thinking about nothing but quail. So I decide to get out of my office and have a nice dinner with my friend Linda, get off the farm, go to the city, and so we go out, and we sit down at the restaurant, and quail is like the third item on the menu. I'm like, no way. I'm trying to get away from quail. But cool. When I was writing about doves, I pinned this note above my desk that said, Try eating squab, Debbie. I always address myself by name when I write notes to myself, as if this is going to be somehow more effective. But I didn't ever eat squab, i.e. pigeon, i.e. dove. Though people do. I never had the opportunity, but so I'm a little bit thrilled when there's quail on the menu. On the other hand, I've been reading Numbers 11, where the Israelites are sick of manna and crave meat, and God says, you want meat? I'll give you meat until it comes out of your nostrils. And then God says, the wind that blows in the quail, piles of quail. Piles and piles like three feet deep, and as long as a day's journey, 
on either side of the camp. And so then the people scoop, scoop up the quails from the pile and eat them, and the text says that while the meat was still between their teeth, they're struck with a plague and die. This doesn't really make quail seem very appetizing. But I order it. I want to get in touch as possible with my birds and with the Israelites. The waiter suggests pairing it with a Chardonnay, which I do, and it's excellent. I like it. Linda, my friend, on the other hand, has to leave the table to vomit. I am not making this up. The quail doesn't come out of her nostrils, and she doesn't die, and it's probably from a seafood allergy, there was fish in the appetizer, or too much wine, not the quail, but still, this is surreal. And also just a little bit funny, even Linda agreed. And the thought passes fleeting through my, fleetingly through my mind that it's some sort of sign from God, though I don't know what it could be that God's trying to say by having Linda vomit quail. The experience does make me disinclined to sit back and judge the Israelites, though they do seem vaguely ungrateful often. That actually seems familiar, being vaguely ungrateful often. And it makes me think long and hard about what we're hungry for and how we're hungry. The Israelites desire something they don't have. That seems pretty familiar, too. It sounds like the human condition. We're driven by desire, and we're destroyed by desire. A lot of people have spent a lot of time thinking about what desire is and what we should do with it. The Buddha, for example, said desire, our grasping after things, makes us suffer. And if we could recognize our desires, allow them, say a friendly hello to them, but then let them pass, let them go, without our attaching ourselves to them, we would suffer less. This seems undoubtedly true to me, but I think it takes a lot of practice, maybe a lifetime. I can barely find 15 minutes. The Sufis say renounce desire, but this is just a first step in a long path where eventually you'll get back to your desire, but when you get back to it, it will be a longing for God. I haven't tried this, but I might. The Greeks believed it was all about keeping desire in check, all about moderation. Kant said that there's desire on the one hand, and there's reason on the other, and he thought they were in opposition. The Romantics loved desire and trusted it. Augustine said that the root of evil is excessive desire. The people should have been happy with the manna, but the rabble among them craved. But Augustine also says that God uses even our misplaced desire to draw us in spite of ourselves to God. And our desire for something beautiful or peaceful or delicious or sumptuous, we are unexpectedly drawn by God's beauty, which Augustine describes as seductive. God seduces us by attracting our desire. I hope so. I learned in Sunday school that there were godly desires good, and there were worldly desires bad. And you were simply supposed to encourage the one and squelch the other in order to live a good and fulfilling life, and I haven't found it to be that simple, actually. Though I appreciate their attempt to sort it out out, I'm not sure that desire can be sorted quite so easily. 
I'm pretty sure that like the rabble among them, I would start to feel like manna was monotonous, eating the same white flaky substance day after day. The psalmist says that manna was like the bread of angels. But what's that? Whatever angels are, they're not like me. I like what grows in the dirt, ancient vines. I like what grows on trees. I like the meat of animals. Sorry, the bread of angels doesn't sound like something I'd want to eat. I realize I probably should desire angel food, but I don't think I do. Desire is complicated, I think, confusing, worth thinking about. We long and we lack, and our longing and our lacking makes us create beautiful paintings and poetry and babies. We don't just grow turnips. We desire more, so we grow heirloom tomatoes and spicy basil. Desire draws us to, to each other. On the other hand, people do get really sick trying to fulfill their desires. They hurt people and wreck things. Desire for profit, profit has made this country sick. It's like a plague, people trying and trying and trying to gather up the meat to eat, but it's toxic. I think it might kill us, kill the planet. Not might, I think it is. The text says that the Israelites die while the meat is still between their teeth. It's kind of graphic, actually. They grab it and they chew it, but even as the juice is dripping down their throats, they die. God gives us what we need. God gives us ground and water and light and food and skin and blood and breath and fellow travelers. But doesn't God also give us desire? I can hardly imagine life without longing. These people are freed from slavery in Egypt. But they barely even celebrate that before they get hungry and thirsty. They're in the desert. There's not water or food. They wonder if it's God's love that led them to this place. Or if it might be more like God hates them. Or some sort of cosmic joke. They've been brought out to this place where they'll just hunger and thirst and then die. They're continually struggling with this insecurity. Are they loved? Will they be taken care of? Is there any point to all this? They really seem to need to know that God is with them. That all this wandering is actually meaningful and not futile. They're people following some god around in a desert. Are they foolish? It's a legitimate question. What are we doing here? This god led them out of Egypt, but they don't trust him yet. They don't really know her that well. God is a little bit mysterious and inscrutable and unfathomable and hard to pin down after all. So the quail appear twice in these stories, once in Exodus and later in Numbers, which is what Barb read. In Exodus, the quail story is really beautiful. 
The people are hungry and the people are insecure. And God responds immediately in this really nice way. God rains, rains in the desert bread from heaven. But not only bread from heaven, meat too. In the evening, quail came and filled the camp. And in the morning, the manna appeared. The word for quail in Exodus is fat. So it's not like God just sends them the bare essentials. God sends them this delicious, fat bird. French cooks can't praise quail meat enough. The people need food, and God sends it lavishly. In Exodus, the quail seem like such a gracious gift, almost over the top. We could survive on cliff bars, but we get succulent delights. When the quail appear in numbers, it's a different story, or a different version of the same story. In this version, the people have been eating manna for a really long time, and they're really sick of it. They want meat. Meat like they ate in Egypt. They also want cucumbers and garlic and onions and melons like they ate in Egypt. Sometimes this version of the story is read as a caution against greed and lust. The Israelites were greedy. So to show them they're bad, God sends the quail to make them sick. The Israelites have excessive desire, so they're punished. God kills them. That's one take on it, but I'm not sure that's a very helpful way to read. What they're actually craving isn't just more, more, some unspecified more, they are fantasizing about the food of Egypt specifically. The cucumbers and the leeks and the melons, they remember Egypt fondly. Like, it was all good back then, before we started our journey, it was so simple, with the cucumbers and the melons and the meat. They don't actually seem greedy as much as, like, they've lost their minds. Really. Like, they are totally deluded. Their memories are completely shot. They really remember that they were filled with good food in Egypt? The Pharaoh wouldn't even give them straw to make bricks. The Pharaoh didn't take care of them. He enslaved them. They're craving the meat of the empire that enslaved them. How weird. How utterly familiar. Money, entertainment, cheap goods, homeland security, surveillance cameras, reality TV. When the quail come in numbers, they aren't delicious. They're oppressive. The people desire the meat of Egypt. They get it, and it kills them. When the rabbis read these texts, they noticed that in Exodus, the manna tasted like wafers made with honey. But in numbers, it tasted like cakes baked in oil. So they concluded that manna was this miraculous food that could taste like whatever you desired it tastes like. So if you desired steak, it would taste like steak. But if your four-year-old desired macaroni and cheese, it would taste like macaroni and cheese. If you want something cheap and fleeting and meaningless, something vacuous, cotton candy, porn, profit prominence... You want to eat the food of your oppression? Have at it. But it might not be very good for you. 
It might not give you much life or nutrition or vitality or a capacity to love and think. What do we desire? The people wandering in the wilderness are just beginning to learn who they are. Who le- learn who they are outside of the tyranny that oppressed them. Sometimes they seem ungrateful and unfaithful and practically unconscious. At times they revert to acting like slaves. But there are times when they seem grateful and they learn to love. They're just learning what it is to be free. And it isn't that simple to be free. They aren't wise yet. Their desires aren't matured. This, after all, is just the very beginning of their story. They don't even know who God is yet. I don't think that we're that different. There's no logical or geographical reason for it to take 40 years to get from Egypt to the Promised Land. Look at it on a map. It's really not that far. But maybe the shortest path, the straight line, isn't always the greatest way to make a journey. Maybe God knows there is a need to wander. To experience hunger and hunger satisfied, there's unmapped territory that needs to be explored, desires that need to be let go of, renounced, or transformed. Maybe God is seducing us. But it's not some crass come on, nor is it smooth. Maybe the path to intimacy, love, and trust is long and complicated. It's a winding path, and there are switchbacks. The newly freed slaves were used to thinking of gods as tyrants or statues, a power that demands subservience, or something sparkling set in gold. I'm not sure we've really gotten over that yet. They don't quite yet have the imagination for a living, loving God that can be trusted. The stories they tell about God are mixed. The traces of an oppressive tyrant remain next to these incredible images of love. You can often see a tyrant from one angle, but from another you can see this God who wants deeply to be loved and to love. God desires God's people deeply in this story. They desire Egypt. Egypt. God gives the people what they desire. But the fulfillment of their desire isn't life, it's death. The story doesn't seem to be about greed that needs to be punished. It's about desire that needs to be transformed. Directed to life instead of death or deathiness. Our desires are so socially constructed that they can barely be called our own. We learn to desire by seeing other people's desire. What do they desire? We learn to desire from our culture. It seems like empire has a way of limiting the possibilities. It's not really that the people desire too much, they desire too little. Their desire lacks imagination. It was defined by the empire that confined them. Of course, 
they need to do some wandering before they reach the promised land. James Allison led a retreat, a retreat for us once. Some of you are probably here where he talked about prayer. He talked about prayer as a place where we allow our desires to be reached by God, where we own up to our desires, whether or not they seem acceptable. He said it's not helpful to hide. It's not helpful to pretend what we want is what we ought to want instead of what we really want, but we can't mention. When you don't admit you want things, it runs you. He said it's only when you can bring together the words I and desire that what you desire becomes alterable. Maybe the people needed to recognize their desire for the meat of Egypt. I mean, the whole story is frustrating for everyone involved, and it's heart-wrenching for God. But eventually they make a grave for that craving, and they're able to move on. Desire is a huge part of who we are. The empire keeps manufacturing desires because the systems need our desire to fuel it. But imagine how different the desire that God would give us would be. I don't think that it'd be really small and stupid and selfish and stunted by some fear of scarcity. I think it would be like an enormous, huge longing for unlimited goodness. Longing for this fathomless, deep love. I think that God is giving us that. Do you feel it?